0: You're listening to Agile Next, the next-generation Agile talk show. I'm Daniel Gulo. And I'm Stephen Forte.
1: Each week, we ask industry leaders to share their past experiences with Agile practices and to provide their insights into where Agile is heading to next.
0: The show is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and by visiting our website at www.agilenext.tv. This episode is brought to you by Applebrook Consulting and Fresco Capital. Whatever your Agile needs, Applebrook Consulting can help with training and coaching. Visit our website at www.apple-brook.com. Fresco
1: Capital is a global venture capital firm focusing on entrepreneurs building global businesses. Visit our website at fresco.vc.
0: Episode 18, October thirteenth, two 2016. So on our show today, we have Gene Russell. Gene is a social ecosystem designer, culture hacker, and facilitator. As a founder of the Thrivability Movement and an expert on collective thriving, Gene speaks to and with change agents, innovators, builders, and edge writers around the world. Her work on Thrivability, innovation, philanthropy, and cultural shifts has been highlighted in The Economist, Harvard Business Review, Stanford Social Innovation Review, and many others. She authored Thrivability, Breaking Through to a World That Works, in 2013. Welcome to the show, Jean.
2: Mm, Thank you for having me.
0: I'm sure many of our guests are maybe not so familiar with the term Thrivability. Could you sort of give us a definition and give us your thoughts and insights on Thrivability?
2: Right. So usually when I'm in person with people and they ask me that, I turn it back and say, well, what do you think it is? Because it's probably that. You know, it is Thriving, right? What does thriving look like to you? Um, If I have to um, really be cornered on it, I'll say being more generative um, than what you consume. So producing more value. Uh, but this shows up in all sorts of different ways. It's like it could relate to how you're um, being as an individual, it could relate to how you're managing your business, um, you know, moving businesses from sustainability practices into thrivability, which I would include play um, and art and culture um, in that way. So, like, how it manifests um, in different scopes of. Uh, Life is the details of like what thrivability really means.
0: So those are kind of the key tenets of thrivability.
2: Yeah, I was looking back at principles that I developed around it with a group of people maybe seven years ago. And one of the things we talked about was um, the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And thrivability tweaks that a little bit. It's more do unto others as they would want done to them. Like there's a listening element there of what's the appropriate thing for that person and don't project your own sense of uh, what you value onto somebody else.
1: And how do people bring the concept of thriveability into their personal life? And then how does that transcend into their professional life?
2: Mostly I w- would like people to invite it as a question because I think everybody has a better sense of their own life than I have of their life. Um, so for one person, thrivability might mean going out and getting in their garden, getting their hands dirty and growing their own food. And for somebody else, it means joining an improv troupe and um, doing some acting improvisation stuff. So uh, I think it quite depends on who the person is, what more thriving would look like for them.
1: And it's a very individual concept then.
2: Yeah, I mean, there are gross patterns to like people need more playfulness, more lightheartedness, more engagement with nature. Um, But yeah, I try not to be the expert on what the outcomes are, and more a facilitator of the question itself.
1: One, One of the things that I like to do with the people I work with and live with and everything is I try to challenge them to step just a a few inches outside of their comfort zone on a regular basis. And I think that thriveability doesn't necessarily have that same tenet, but I think there's a, a parallel there where you're challenging people to do different things and then that transcends to um, the other things that are more routine in their life or breaking their routine.
2: Yes. Yes, I would agree with that. But one of the things that it brings up for me is people will say, Um, well, this thing appears to be thriving. Is that really it? And now uh, uh, let's say somebody said the mafia, you know, the mafia is thriving or whatever. It's like, well, you have to think about yourself, your community, your organization, society as a whole. So when you're pushing your edges, sometimes consider, well, maybe this is good for me, but it's not good for my family or my community, or maybe my edge to push is how I can be more of a contribution to my business or um, or society as a whole.
0: Yeah. So when I think about thrivability, my sort of frame of reference is you know horticulture and you know plants growing and and living and existing and doing very well, you know, as opposed to slowly dying over maybe a period. So it has a it kind of has a deep relationship sense to it, doesn't it? You know, individuals and interactions. And, and how they flourish together?
2: Yes. Yes, for me, there's no thrivability in a vacuum. It's always relating to what's um, the ecosystem, whether that's a social ecosystem or in a, you know, a physical environment.
1: Can you talk a little bit more about that social ecosystem? Because mm-hmm. without you're not starting a movement that says everyone must get up at 6am and do yoga and drink caricatures You're, you're basically saying, find your, find the thing internally that will make you more thrivable. But yet there's an ecosystem of people doing these different things. Um, does that generate an ecosystem of uh, a similar outcome and patterns or is it totally, is it harmonious or is it chaotic?
2: Um, maybe it's verging on chaotic. Uh, I think about it as, um, like if we're all doing the same thing that creates a monoculture and there's dangerous to a monoculture. And if instead we think about it like evolution and genetics, like every once in a while there's a mutation and somebody's doing something different and then that works and we follow that pattern. So, I mean, in general, sure, there's good practices around eat well, get exercise, um, but some people function better at eleven o'clock at night than they do at six o'clock in the morning, so like find where your own um, thriving is rather than following somebody else's uh, routinized process
1: and is are there any frameworks to help individuals find their own thriveness?
2: Sure, I think there's tons of of frameworks. I have a background in coaching, and so that's one of the ways that I became present to, like, well, what does my own thriving look like? And even got attracted to the idea of, you know, what's the highest, best self and what, then what's the highest, best society. Um, but, but managing this thing of diversity versus um, redundancy, I think, is, is one of the challenges for Thriveability because there's no one recipe that's perfect uh just you have to look out for where there's an emergent pattern that's useful and, and see if it fits for the situation that you're in.
0: So what what would a day look like in coaching somebody in their thriveability?
2: A day coaching a person. Well, usually coaching is only an hour at a time as opposed to a whole day. But do you so do you mean what would their day look like? What
0: would it look like from your perspective? Whether it's a day or an hour.
2: Well, I I think that you were on to something with the, uh, you know, what's their edge? So, you know, is this person already um, really optimizing for their own health and well-being? Um, Are they looking for more mental stimulation? Are they looking for more physical um, benefits? And how are they relating to themselves, their family, um, other people in their lives? So I look at relationships um i'd look at their relationship to work and money uh people's relationship to money often has um uh barriers that need to be broken through um and uh, and daniel knows this like i'm so interested in gratitude i think gratitude is a huge thrivability booster um when we're present and grateful for the things that we have we stop focusing on the lack of the things that we don't have Uh, And that gratitude is part of the um, creating more value than you consume, because you move away from tit for tat kind of dynamics into, um, I feel full, and therefore, how can I be generous?
1: And um, that's actually very fascinating. And I start thinking about how this ecosystem develops very organically. And I'm wondering, what does it look like? You've done some coaching, or people have taken this initiative on amongst themselves at an organization. So I'm let's pretend I'm the CEO of a of a small organization of a couple hundred people or I'm a manager of a division or, or or a team leader and we've engaged with some coaching or we've done this on our own. What does that start to look like and then what are some of the benefits that I would have?
2: Oh, it so depends on where you're at. Right. So so do we already have a practice of being mindful and and being conscious of our relationships with each other and having Um, healthy practices in the organization and are we already encouraging good healthy well-being activities outside the organization it's so context dependent and this is one of the things that I think is so complicated about people understanding thrivability I don't have some simple answer get up at six o'clock in the morning right it's always so context dependent what's already present there so like as a consultant what I come in and do is first assess where are we now and then where do we want to be and what's the reasonable next step to get us there um, that leverages the strengths that we have. And so it, in every context that might have, might look quite different.
0: Gene, talk about some of the folks that have influenced you and some of the work that has contributed to your work on Thrivability.
2: Mm, okay. So I am, um, first of all, let me say that my background is in philosophy and biology And then I went into English uh, theater and art Doing a lot of like what is meaning, how is meaning made uh, Who are we, how do we form identity So that's kind of like the, the ground floor for me is a lot of stuff around that um, More recently, I'm strongly influenced by people like John Hegel who uh, is a co-founder of the Deloitte Center for the Edge. Uh, one of his most recent books is The Power of Pole. Um, so I'm, I'm heavily influenced by his work. Uh, he's a fantastic listener, and a lot of the stuff he's talking about now is The Power of Narrative. And then I'm also strongly influenced by Nilla Merchant, she wrote a book called The New How, and in that book, it's, there's this great part where she talks about the air sandwich, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Of, I mean, maybe not the phrase, but the concept that management is telling one story, and the people on the bottom are having a completely different experience, and there's this gap between what either the management or the organization is proclaiming and what's actually happening on the ground, and how do we then close that gap? And then she wrote a book um, after posting a series of blog post to Harvard Business Review um, called the 13, I think it's 13 rules for the social era. And she's really laying out what is this next phase? Like if, if factory production was an improvement on our productivity over like craft style where one person makes the object from start to finish, network production is the next layer up from that. And what that looks like is using social ecosystems. So, um, you know, Lyft might be an example of creating a social ecosystem or Airbnb, creating a social ecosystem that uh, can highly customize the experience for people while also being um, super, super efficient in a way that a corporation who in housed all of that stuff wouldn't have uh, the efficiency gain of having owned and managed all of it. So she's a huge influence on me. Um, Danello Meadows, who uh, wrote a lot about complexity science, um, is a deep inspiration for me.
1: I'd also love for you to expand a little bit more on the air sandwich. I, I've worked in some environments where I've been kind of had the life sucked out of me. I've lived inside of that air sandwich. <laughs> can you talk a little bit more about it and just how thrivability can kind of uh, inoculate us against it?
2: Yeah. I don't know that I've thought that much about how thrivability relates to it except for like, well, that's clearly not thriving. Um, but there's a sense of like. If we, if we think about it in biological terms as like an individual is like a cell with a membrane and an organization also has that kind of membrane, then there's a lack of integrity within that cell, right? The outside is saying one thing, the inside is doing something else. And how do we close that gap? Like, because you as um, the sense organ for that membrane can feel the dissonance between what's being said and what's being done. And so, um, you know, I've been interested in things like holacracy as a way uh, to develop tools to sense what's happening so that that information can get conveyed. And uh, people are on both sides of the holacracy fence. I get, um, but I think it's an interesting emergent process for helping to source Uh, the wisdom from everybody in the collective in order to uh, create more integrity for the whole. Um, And, you know, there's a way in which that air sandwich is almost inevitable in organizations that have large scale because there gets to be further and further distance between what's happening on the ground and the people making those choices, and the abstraction creates that gap. Um, And so changing network structures into something more like a wirearchy, I don't know if you're familiar with John Husband's work on wirearchy, but he basically means, you know, more of a network structure. Um, And then the question then becomes, well, how do you manage a company using a network structure instead of, you know, those multiple layers between decision makers and operators Um, and so David Gray has a good book called the connected company that talks a little bit about that. Um, but to me, it's definitely a network problem of like, of course that gap arises when there's too many steps between the people on the ground and the people who are making decisions about it.
0: Holacracy is definitely a a popular topic these days. Uh, so could you expand just a little bit more on maybe the pros and cons that you see when it comes to holacracy?
2: Sure. Um, so, I think most people find Holacracy kind of stunning because they have not, it's not transparent to them that every organization have a go- has a governance process. And what Holacracy is, is a governance process that enables emergent, evolving governance. What I think is captivating about it is that it puts in place mechanisms to allow organizations to evolve. In the past, we've designed organizations to become static, or the way that they grow is very modular um, and mechanical in, in metaphor. And holacracy is a very organic and evolving tool. Uh, I think a huge part of the difficulty with Holacracy is you get a bunch of people who haven't from the ground up kind of decided on doing that kind of governance. You know, they go into a company like Zappos, who's used other governance processes, um, including a lot of governance by um, kind of compelling figure, right? The person who's got the most attention or fans within the organization kind of had a role to play and instead move it into people are stewarding uh, a role and um, kind of shepherding and, and evolving what that role does in response to the mission. So you get a bunch of people who are used to the old model of doing it, and if you just inject them into the new evolving governance, uh, they've got to get whiplash. Like, a, and, and I'm sure you've seen this with companies trying to take on Agile too. It's you change the process and people don't understand what's the politics here. What am I responsible for? How does this work? And those things are like deeply ingrained within each individual on how they've learned how to operate in an organization. And so I think it's been kind of clunky to do some of the culture change to get holacracy to fit, um, And as part of that, holacracy can be a little heavy on process. So if you're with a group of people who've never done that kind of work before, um, the process is heavy and time-consuming in order to get to the clarity. I think 15 years from now, when we've got a bunch of different models like holacracy and people are much more used to being um, autonomous and good shepherds of their role, that sort of um, bulkiness is going to slim down. So that's my major concern is it's hard culture change um, best done from the bottom up. Uh, You know, as you're growing an organization, start with it rather than trying to force fit. Um, And I think, you know, with Zappos, they did a pretty good job of trying to take small group and test it out and then scale it up. And, you know, we'll see how that plays out.
1: And things like Holacracy and Thrivability and, And when you combine that maybe with Agile, is that more of the appropriate response to changing an organization's culture and and the way it evolves?
2: Right. Well, you're hitting right on where my interest is at this time. Like this year, I'm so focused on um, how do we interweave good strategy with culture? Because people are, are doing too much force fitting. Like, oh, this is a good model. As if you could just turn it on, like install a program and run it on your computer and people don't function that way. Um, so let's zoom out just a little bit and go back to some of the stuff that Nilifer had talked about the, you know, switching to this social era, we're moving from a world that's very mechanical as a metaphor, like it's a machine, it's a factory, that kind of model. Um, it can be run as a program into something that is much more organic and emergent, And Thrivability is totally an example of this. Like it's more about the question than it is about a static answer. Um, So Holacracy is about that. How do we evolve and just create structures for doing the evolution over time based on what's context appropriate um, for the people who are in that situation? So that's a large pattern shift. Um, And so when I do culture change with organizations, It's the same thing that I do with coaching, like go in and understand the context from an anthropological perspective. Like what are the behaviors and patterns and stories that are operating in this organization? And then what are the ways that we can take small steps to shift that? What's wanting to arise? Like listening to people in the organization to find out what's what they're feeling called to and not trying to do some whole shift all at once in some magnificent leap. Does that make sense?
0: So that absolutely makes sense. And it, it reminds me a lot of, um, you know, the, the challenges I face when I go to organizations and um, struggle with, I, I, I'm not trying to change their culture. I'm trying to figure out, you know, what their culture is first and, and see, you know, what model can, can fit in with, with, uh, their practices and, and who they are and, and so on. You're currently collaborating on a book with Herman Wagter, focusing on designing social ecosystems for optimal productivity and coherence. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and give us kind of a vignette or a taste of what's to come with that?
2: Yes. Oh, I'm really excited about this project, um, I have been in conversation with Herman for I don't know five years, maybe. I, I met him at an event um, in the, on the East Coast, and he was interested in the idea of therapability. And at that time, he had done um, fiber to the home in Amsterdam. And what I mean by that is, he got government, business, and the private sector to all agree that installing fiber for Internet access was a great idea. And through our conversations, he was like, Oh, you're describing the stuff that I'm doing. And so, after meeting several times, we decided to kind of pull together all the people that I was talking to about these emergent practices on how to get social flow. And by that, I mean like how businesses, communities, organizations of any kind of type are having people work together in order to achieve an outcome. Um, So we collected a bunch of people that were doing very edgy practices and asked them for interviews and essays and collected that whole body of information. And then we, Fed that back into a community. We had an event where we discussed it and then we had community calls to like reflect on it and get even more wisdom and processing. And so now we're in the final stages of kind of polishing. What does that mean? What is the process by which we in practice um, create a different idea and then implement that idea and then continue to evolve um, and iterate on that for humans? Um, so that's what the book is about, and it's going to be useful for people who are um, designing or leading organizations. It's going to be p- useful for people who are um, doing urban planning, um, a- any kind of multi-sector partnership work, associations, that sort of thing. If you're working, you know, if you're thinking about how do you get people to get stuff done, the book should be helpful.
0: That's great. It's, it sounds like it's a must-read for the next year Moving forward,
2: I, I hope so. You know, Thurman's background is as a theoretical physicist. And so his writing tends to be very bullet point like, here's the thing that you do. And so trying to get that into a style that's readable um, while not disturbing the deep wisdom that's emerged from the work has been the challenge in, in doing the writing together. Because he's, like I said, a, um, a really grounded practitioner. If you're too brief in the explanation, then it's hard to for the next person to implement on that idea. So hopefully we've got it down, and, and we're even thinking about creating a deck of cards that will help people you know, think through the questions that are needed to um, be evolving their own organisms.
1: And, that, and that's a great way to get people engaged, and you know, that provides a bit of a framework for them to get rolling. Right. And when you were talking about the book and... And sometimes with your teaching and your writing, you've probably run across some areas that you never thought would benefit from thrivability. You mentioned urban planning. And when you said that, I was like, wow, that totally makes sense, but I never would have thought about it. Do you think, can you mention for us one or two areas
2: that you've worked with in the past that surprised you? It's all a surprise. Um, <laughs> some of the things that come up are a surprise. I don't know if it's an organization or a field that's a surprise um, because I'm, I'm always looking for the unexpected or the positive deviance. But I've been interested in the circus lately, and I find that surprising. Like, what does the circus have to do with thrivability? Um, but it has to do with this playfulness. Like, when we're playing, our minds are more open. We're more creative. And like we need more people in that state and so much of society is putting us into fear state and contraction where we're not creative uh, when we need to be because the world is you know, accelerating change. And so I've been looking at the circus as a metaphor for like, how do we do an embodied practice of becoming more thrivable? And that was kind of a surprise to me. I, you know, if you had said five years ago, you'd be looking at the circus as, as a model of what does this look like? Um, that would have shocked me, but think about it. It's like multiple things are happening at once. Uh, there's an, it's controlled chaos. Yeah. And it's riding that edge of, you know, what's possible. Um, there's a performative aspect, like they know there's an audience and when we're in organizations, we're now much more clear, like there's an audience, whether it's your peers or the outside the organization, um, there's an audience. And so there's a little bit of production for that. Um, and there's deep practice, getting better and better and better. Like it's not just like miraculously you show up at the circus and you're good at those things. It takes a, a whole bunch of, of deep practice. And so many of the acts are um, collaborative. You know, you have to be able to work with somebody else. Um, and there's quick feedback loops. You know, you're juggling, the ball falls. You get feedback. <laughs> that didn't work. Um, and so I think there's been an interest in improv, and I've certainly loved improv. But I think the circus does this embodied practice very quickly um, of what being thriveable is like.
0: It definitely seems, you know, completely opt in as well. You know, it's not like people fail at a job and they say, "Well, I guess I'll go join the circus now."
2: <laughs> right.
0: So people people conscientiously choose. Right. Gene, we ask all of our guests kind of. A similar question, Um, you know, what what does the future hold for Agile?
2: I'm excited for Agile because I think that it follows some of these big shifts that I'm saying about, you know, moving from a very mechanical view to a very organic view of the world. Um, I am curious to see how it integrates outside the developer Space. So, is it if you're part of a finance team and you're processing invoices or something, is it appropriate to do a stand up? Does that help? Um, So, what does that cascade effect as it infects a lot more of society look like? Um, And I myself have used um, a modified version of Scrum in my coaching practice and in my business relationships. Um, so I find some of the key tools to be really useful, but I think it'll keep evolving. Like I like holacracy, but I think it needs to evolve and it's just the first of many. Um, I'm interested to see like, what's all the mutations that come out of that, that become context appropriate to, um, roles and jobs that are not traditionally part of that, um, productivity cycle.
1: Okay, great. And, uh, one thing that we also like to do is ask you what's next for you. Um, you know, you mentioned your book about what's, what's, what's next for you, the second half of 2016 and beyond any, any great conference keynotes or books or additional books or seminars or just other trends that you're observing.
2: Right. Um, so the book is coming out this fall. Um, I don't have an exact date yet, but I'm, um, Super excited about that. I have been doing some prototypes of new consulting based on what I've learned in the book. So starting to work with some clients around doing the culture change. And I'm using a lot of participatory process in that. So uh, it's not quite open space, but it's really engaging people in the co-creation of their next um, strategy and how they want to be hacking their own organizational culture. So those are the two things that I'm most excited about. I am also um, with my husband running a Thrivable Future Salon, and so we're lining up speakers to come and discuss with our audience there things about um, what might create a more Thrivable Future for all of us and what's practical things that we could be doing today to to move in that direction. Those are the big things.
0: That sounds fantastic, Jean. Just a, a word of deep thanks and gratitude. We don't have a tree, but thank you very much for taking the time to be on the show. It was a very delightful conversation.
2: Thank you for taking time for me and inviting me. I'm honored.
0: Next week on Agile Next with Anole Day. A big Agile Next thank you to our sponsors, Fresco Capital and Applebrook Consulting. Visit Fresco Capital at frescocapital.com and Applebrook Consulting at apple We hope to see you next week on Agile Next. In the meantime, check out our website at agilenext.tv.